And a very happy Feast of St. Nicholas to everyone. Welcome to the Rubrics Podcast. I'm Father Steve Rice. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever your streaming service, welcome. I am not with Father Luke today. Father Luke is um, doing a more important duty. He is taking care of James today, and that's where he should be. But we didn't want to let this week go by without some commentary um, for the Rubrics podcast, both for your edification, if we can provide something, but also it's good for us to also remain in the discipline, the the habit, the ritual, if you will, of providing this content um, every week. So. I'm solo for um, a shorter time. I think it's less compelling to have one voice than to have two talking. But I want to reflect on uh, three things that are in some ways completely unrelated, but maybe of those three, there'll be something helpful for you in your reflections this week. Um, The first is today is the Feast of St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra. Santa Claus. And my assumption is if you're listening to this podcast or you're watching this on online, that you probably are in the know about the story of St. Nicholas and Santa Claus. And I, I made a, a reel this morning. Father Luke and I, we try to make a, a reel for Instagram and Facebook every day, basically a reflection of our homily at Mass. Sometimes we go a little bit um, in different directions than what we preached on that morning. But the rule of thumb is whoever's making the reel that day is the one who who preached. In fact, that is our 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 pattern. And um, my comment today was, what do Christian parents do with Santa Claus talking to their children? A question that people ask me from time to time, and I know it's a question that I think that parents might ask themselves. And I think that the... Um, the issue is, I mean, we all like traditions. We all like fun. My mother of blessed memory loved Christmas more than any other season. And she uh, she loved the tradition of Santa Claus. That was her favorite. She collected Twas the Night Before Christmas books, which of course is all about jolly old Saint Nick coming down, that jolly old elf. Um, I think the question though is, is when it moves from being something that's fun something in which we are all in on, when that moves from a tradition that's fun to becoming what is an unspoken system of belief, that becomes problematic. Like my mother um, used to always say, if you don't believe, you won't receive. Now, she said that in fun. I knew what she meant. But I think that um, it's easy in this day and time to take things to the extreme. Because Christmas has been so uh, commercialized and so secularized, really, it is easy to fall into the replacement of belief in Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, for us to replace the belief in that to the belief that Santa Claus is real and he will reward good children with presents and um, and not reward bad children. And I guess they get coal. We don't we don't hear much about coal anymore. I certainly did growing up. That can be a problem because what happens is if we if we play our hand too strongly on that, and then inevitably when the when the child comes to know the, the truth, then I think there is the potential, depending on how how strongly it was presented, there becomes a a question of credibility among the parents. 
if this was the central belief of my childhood, and I come to discover that it was a fun tradition, then what else that you now set up as a central belief, what else now um, will I discover is a fun tradition or not real at all? And I think that is something that that we need to be careful of. So every home is different. Every presentation is different. In, in my in my home, I was um, I was always like an individual who'd been called before Congress to testify. I can neither confirm nor deny anything when my kids would ask me, "Dad, is is Santa Claus real?" My response, though, was consistent, and that was Saint Nicholas is absolutely real. And I know he's he's real. Um, sometimes I may say, I don't know about the other guy, but I know about St. Nicholas. And let me tell you about him, um, whose feast we celebrate today. And then I think we discover that the story of St. Nicholas is more compelling, more powerful, more inspiring than anything that, you know, Coca-Cola, Disney, Pixar, whatever, whoever is driving the... Um, the character of Santa Claus now is is far better. One thing I would do is when your kids are younger, especially, is treat December sixth as the day in which there is some um, some element of of gift giving. Again, not to commercialize it or to make to make this a materialistic celebration, but in some way to to make the connection between the giving of a gift and Saint Nicholas saving uh, a father with his three daughters from from a life of um, servitude or prostitution, because uh, that those were the only choices really for these three women. If you don't know the story, St. Nicholas, and it's told in, in various forms, these are very, very old stories and their details tend to tend to take on different uh, flavors and, and colors over time. But, but basically, the uh, Nicholas as a bishop, Myra, present-day Turkey, fourth century, was attentive attentive to the needs of his people. And there was a father who had three daughters and he was poor, had no money for a dowry to to give to a uh, suitor, potential husband, which was the custom of the day, a custom that frankly still continues in American weddings. Who pays for the wedding? Traditionally, the bride's family pays for the wedding. That's kind of the dowry. Um, they, The father had no money. So as each daughter came of marrying age, and if she wasn't married, then those other two unsavory um, 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 paths became real realities, he would come in and put gold in the stockings that were either warming by the fire or drying out by the window. And the father would arise on the next morning and discover he had enough for a dowry and able to make sure his daughter had a safe and hopefully happy life. And with every daughter that came of age, the same thing happened. That's the tradition of uh, putting your stockings by the chimney um, or putting your shoes out um, so that Santa Claus knows who is who, or St. Nicholas can tell who is who. The other thing to do is is to mark this day as a day of generosity in which you can um, show kindness anonymously to people who are in need. Those are, those are a couple, couple of examples. Um, the other thing I want to say is that, um, and this week is a week of extraordinary feasts, even though this is the first week of Advent, we don't wear purple until Saturday. So 
Monday was the feast of St. John of Damascus. Yesterday was the feast of St. Clement of Alexandria. Today is the feast of Nicholas of Myra. Tomorrow is the feast of Ambrose of Milan. And then Friday is the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. One of those Marian feasts that gets people worked up who are not in the Roman Catholic communion. Uh, and a lot of eyebrows are raised inevitably among Anglicans. Why are we celebrating this Marian feast? couple of things I want to just say briefly on that. It's a beautiful feast. And I think it's one that actually, instead of detracting from the saving nature of Jesus Christ, actually strengthens that proclamation. I'm not sure if you can hear Robert playing the organ above. If you do, he's practicing above me. Um, so what are those, what are, how does it strengthen it? And, 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 and what is the role of these Marian traditions and dogmas in the Anglican tradition? Well, let me answer the second one first. What is the role in the Anglican tradition? There is a beautiful document produced by ARCIC, the Anglican Roman, Roman Catholic International Commission or a consultation, which really talked about the two different traditions' views on the Virgin Mary. And specifically, it goes into some detail about the um the Immaculate Conception, which is the which is the 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 doctrine or dogma, if you're Roman Catholic, that Mary was conceived without sin, not Jesus Christ, but Mary was conceived without sin. Um, and the assumption is the fact that Mary is now um, in heaven, body and soul. Archic, the final report, um, acknowledge that understood properly from the perspective of the saving nature of Jesus Christ, which not only extends um, forward in the future, but also extends um, into the past because of the cosmic nature of his sacrifice, that one could come to understand that Mary was conceived without sin because the merits of her son reach back to prepare her for this. And so it's not that Mary is has this unique role because of her own merits, at all, but because specifically of the merits of her son who has prepared her for this moment. And I think if you were to approach the fact that um, um, Father Herbert McCabe, um, no longer with us, Dominican um, theologian, really wrote beautifully and challengingly about the fact that God does not have a story. God does not have a timeline. God being eternal does not develop for us, which is how we as is linear people understand everything, and understandably so. Everything in our created existence and experience has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So it's understandable if we assume God also has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And one of the hiccups that we we have in this is thinking that there is the the Word of God, the pre-incarnate Christ, or the Word of God before before Christmas Day. Then you have the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, from being born in Bethlehem or, or the Annunciation to his ascension. And then you have the glorified Christ um, at the right hand of the Father, and then coming to judge the quick and the dead, and then we all live and reign with him forever and ever. So for us, if we look at it in terms of a beginning, middle, and an end, we have a pre-incarnate Christ, which is where we would see um theophanies or, or or manifestations of of Christ in the Old Testament maybe we see him in um, Melchizedek or maybe we see him with um, um Shadrach Meshach and Abednego in the in the fiery furnace um so on and so forth and then you have the incarnate Christ and then you have the the glorified ascended Christ as well that is how and this is what um Herbert McCabe says John Bear orthodox theologian also takes on Herbert McCabe and and, and builds on this 
That is not how God develops. That is how we come to understand God. That is our experience with God. That is our story that is um, un that unfolds in our engagement with Holy Scripture. But God does not have a story. God is not linear. So in that sense, um, Herbert McCabe would say it is it is um, the wrong way to think about it is to think about pre-incarnate, carnate, and glorified. There is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And then we encounter him in the Old Testament. We encounter him um, in the Gospels, and then we encounter him in the Spirit. So in that sense, Jesus Christ is 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 um, who he is in every part of Holy Scripture. It's challenging because it, it forces us to, to not think about God in a linear fashion where his story unfolds. But if we do that, I think the Immaculate Conception fits logically and perfectly with that. If, again, for instance, Melchizedek is Christ, if the third, the fourth person in the fiery furnace, one who looks like the Son of Man, is Jesus Christ, that makes sense. So that's something for your meditation. But the the document, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's Mary, Grace, and Hope in Christ is the title of it. If you go to the Anglican, Anglican Communion website, or Google it. You can find a free PDF and download it. In fact, I commend it to you to, to read. If nothing else, read the summary points at the end of the document, um, which is um, um, edifying. Um, I do every year on, on these feasts. The third thing I want to say is I had the great privilege, um, today's Wednesday, on Monday, of doing a Zoom presentation to students at the Anglican Theological Institute and that's not what it's called. It's the Theological Institute of the Church of Ireland in um, in Dublin. It's an Anglican, it's an Anglican um, theological institute. What I discovered in the in the conversation is that the Irish understandably do not consider themselves English. And Anglican means English in a sense. And I think it can be tricky. They are members of the Church of Ireland and they're part of the Anglican communion. But you get the point. At any rate, they asked me to make a presentation via Zoom on Anglo-Catholicism in the United States, which I was just honored and, and um, overjoyed to be able to do. What that meant for me is that I needed to actually go back and and do some study and, and brush up on the history of Anglo-Catholicism in the United States, which meant I needed to also brush up on the story of the Episcopal Church in the United States, United States, which I did and found it absolutely um, interesting of things that I had forgotten and things, frankly, I don't think I ever knew. So I want to give a brief summary of, of kind of those things, because I think that there is an interesting parallel, perhaps, in the formation of the Episcopal Church and why high church theology and then later Anglo-Catholic expression became um, natural and how it's really always been a part of the Episcopal Church. But I'll be brief because I talked a long time on this Zoom and no one wants to hear me talk um, by myself for an hour. But I think what's important to remember when you think about the formation of the Episcopal Church is that, of course, as Americans, we know that our country began as 13 colonies. And what was surprising to me is um, that, I mean, first of all, to recognize that of those 13 colonies, they all operated for the most part, as independent states. Now, we know that. We know that's part of our DNA. But the extent to how independent they were 
I think maybe would surprise us. Now, I'm from South Carolina, so I have an interest in South Carolina. But as a North Carolinian now, the the colony of, of the Carolinas was given to the eight Lords proprietors. These were businessmen who were essentially given these two colonies by Charles II in as a reward for their fidelity to his father, Charles I, who was executed January 30th, 1649. So they were given this land as their own um, you know, money-making machine. And they had, especially in South Carolina, because of the climate, the aim was to make it a um, continental version on the, on the North American continent of like Barbados, which they also owned and was just a huge moneymaker in, term, in terms of sugarcane. So the development of the Carolinas was very much a business model and sort of the rights and privileges that were enshrined in the early days were ones that were good for business. Now, the Church of England was established in the Carolina provinces, along with Georgia, uh, along with uh, Maryland, uh, along with Virginia, and then along with some of the counties of New York. Now, Maryland, we always assume, is a sort of a Roman Catholic colony, but Church of England was established. So of the 13 colonies, uh, fewer than half had the Church of England as the established church. But the the weight of that establishment was in the southern colonies. And that sort of makes sense when you understand the history of them. The, the northern colonies were a bit more independent and were established for that independence. I mean, if you think about Plymouth Rock in 1620, Massachusetts, these were colonies, these were Puritans were establishing these. So it would not have the establishment of the Church of England, even though they were still British. Okay, that's a lot being said. What does that mean? Well, it means that there was no uniformity among the colonies. Each one was its own um, overseas national church under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of London. The Bishop of London had spiritual jurisdiction over overseas colonies. The Bishop of London, however, had no real interest in doing anything with these colonies. These were, you know, frontier places. It took a long time to go to see them. So um, the point is from you know, 1607, which I think is when Virginia was was uh, established formally, to the year 1784, which is the year that Samuel Seabury of Connecticut was consecrated bishop in, in Scotland, there were no bishops in the colonies. 1607 to 1784, no bishops, nearly 200 years, which means um, there were no ordinations. You would, you would travel to London to be ordained if you were seeking holy orders, it means no confirmations, which is interesting because if confirmation does something, what, what does that mean for people who didn't receive it? And a question that was asked on the Zoom, which I don't have an answer to, is who took communion if confirmation was required for admission to the sacrament of the Eucharist, which in the prayer book of 1662, that is the requirement. Up in, in, in the Episcopal Church, 1928, confirmation was the requisite prerequisite for receiving communion. That changed in 1979, where baptism is now full initiation, and um, babies, children can receive communion. 
So with that long period of time without bishops, a culture was created. And that culture was one that was suspicious of bishops, didn't, didn't trust them, didn't need them. It also created a, a culture in which the churches that did thrive were very um, were, were, had a strong laity involved, especially during the Revolutionary War, when the majority of, of, of uh, clergy left, many went to Canada. In the case of Samuel Seabury, the first bishop in the Episcopal Church, he was so loyal to, to, the, to the king that he was a chaplain in, in the king's army in the Revolutionary War. So the first bishop in the Episcopal Church was not a, um, was not, um, a patriot, but was a royalist. Very, very complicated. And when you have that division in the war, I mean, you can understand that when the war was over, the church was depressed uh, for a couple of reasons. One is if you were the Church of England and you just fought a difficult war with England, that's that's the that's the wrong brand to have. And so in those colonies where the Church of England had been established, well, clearly now it's disestablished. And in the case of Virginia, there was a great um, a great uh, price the churches had to pay. The House of Burgesses in the in the now the state of Virginia passed a law that reclaimed extra land and I believe took endowments and money from those parishes. They could keep their individual buildings, which is why you have things like Rutan Parish and Williamsburg. They could keep the buildings, but the other things, uh, they, they were taken back if they were supported by Virginia tax dollars. No, it's ours now. It's no longer yours. No longer belongs to the, to the monarch. So in the southern states, the church, for the most part, was was um, pretty depressed because of disestablishment and the political ramifications uh, uh, that that resulted from that. Connecticut, interestingly enough, uh, became a stronghold of Anglicanism. Um, partly, and again, stronghold is relative. It doesn't mean that was the majority of, of uh, Christians um, by by a long shot. Part of the the rise of Anglicanism in Connecticut actually comes from Yale. Yale College, the second oldest college, I think, in the United States, just behind Harvard by, by just a little bit, was founded to train Congregationalist ministers, so Reformed ministers, but not Church of England, not Anglican clergy. In 1722, seven of the tutors at Yale um, converted to the Church of England, and that was really controversial. It was called, I think it happened on September 13th, 1722, known as the Yale Apostasy, where these Congregationalists now became Anglicans. And they did so um, after reading about the the Caroline Divines, reading the works of uh, you know Lancelot Andrews and Elizabethan divines and and these great luminaries um, after the beginning of the Elizabethan settlement and the Church of England as we now know it was established. So that's Yale, and that's that sort of once they discovered the episcopacy and the importance of bishops. Remember, they weren't in the country for over a hundred years at that point, and so I think to some degree, even though there was real suspicion about bishops, the more they read about them and reading patristic figures and reading about how um, previous generations of Anglicans viewed the episcopacy, now there was maybe 
I'm, I'm spitballing, maybe a, a romanticism about the role of the bishop and how they're spiritual fathers and 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 the connection to the apostolic and primitive church. Primitive church in this sense is not a pejorative. That's that's a good thing. You go back to the church in its pure form. So that happening in in Connecticut. It's no wonder then that the clergy of Connecticut, after the war was over, were the ones who said, if we're going to continue and have a unified church and we're going to join together, we must be, we, we need to have bishops as, as instruments of unity, as shepherds, but also to keep that connection, which is so important. It is in our ecclesiology, our polity to have bishops. So the handful of clergy in Connecticut um, elect Samuel Seabury, a man who was trained for the law in Scotland. That's important. They elect him and they give him the mandate, go over to, to London and get ordained, um, consecrated bishop, whatever it takes, make it happen. So he spent 16 months in in Britain. The Bishop of London really had no interest in, in ordaining him. Very complicated matter, um, very, very difficult. And, and one can sympathize, I think, with the Bishop of London. So I think it was said that he received a cool reception from the bishop, nothing. Same thing with the Archbishop of Canterbury. So after a long period of time, when it became clear that he was being ghosted, to use a modern term, he went to Scotland, where there were four bishops in Scotland, which was disestablished, meaning it was not the official church of the state. And uh, these bishops in Scotland were the ones that were non-jurors meaning they, they did not take uh, the oath uh, to the monarch because they did not believe in the legitimacy of the new uh, monarchy after the um, removal of James II, the, um, the grandson of Charles I. So to give you some, some English monarchy history, don't fall asleep on me, is of course you have um, um, Henry VIII, his son, Edward VI, he dies. So then his sister, uh, Mary, comes to the throne briefly. She dies. Elizabeth I comes to the throne and reigns a long, long time. She's a virgin queen. She has no heir. So a relative, um, um, James, James Stuart from Scotland comes in. James VI of Scotland, James I of England. And then he has a son, Charles, Charles I. And then Charles has a son, um, 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 Charles II. And then we have James II. James II was Roman Catholic, and that was why um, it was untenable for him to continue to reign. And so you have the glorious revolution bringing in of William and um, William and Mary. Um, and I, I'm having a brain fog. Charles, um, James II may have been the brother of, um, of, of Charles II. I can't remember. At any rate, it doesn't matter. It's the Stuart line. So these Scottish bishops believe that the legitimate a monarchy was in the Stuart line and not in this in this new one that was brought over. So they did not um, swear allegiance. So they were non-juring bishops. So Samuel went to the bishops in Scotland. There were four of them. One was ill. The other three happily consecrated him, made him bishop in the Bishop of Aberdeen's chapel, and he came back to America. So this is a long story made somewhat shorter. He comes back. So why is that important? It's important because these non-juring bishops held the episcopacy in high regard. They were loyal to the Stuart line. What is important, important about the Stuart line? Well, Charles I in 1649 died for the episcopacy. 
There was the English Civil War was going on, and it was, to a large degree, about governance of the church. The Puritans, the Presbyterians, did not want bishops, did not believe in the role of bishops, and wanted a Presbyterian form of government, meaning um, governed by elders and not by bishops. Charles could have saved his life and saved his crown had he um, agreed with them and relented his hardened stance and, and changed the nature of the Church of England, but he did not. He refused to do so because he believed not only in his divine right as a king to, to, to rule, but he also believed in Christ's church as established in the threefold ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons. So that tradition of, of uh, that steward insistence on, on Christ's church as established in this way continues uh, with, with in the theological tradition in, in the church there and these bishops. So Samuel, who certainly knew this when he was studying for law, Samuel also coming up in Connecticut after the quote-unquote Yale apostasy in 1722, had this high view of the church, of the episcopacy, and the sacraments. That's really what it means to be high church. Originally, had nothing to do with ritual, with incense, with ceremonial. It had to do with an elevated understanding of the theological principles of the church, of the sacraments, of the priesthood, of the episcopacy, of these things. Um, that is what a high church person was. And so you see this theologically with Samuel Johnson, you see this with Samuel Seabury, and so he comes back. And so the first bishop in the Episcopal Church, newly formed, had this high church tradition. The next great luminary in the, in the now newly formed Episcopal Church was John Henry Hobart. I'm going to mention him because he's very important and also ties in a bit of a North Carolina connection. John Henry Hobart was the third bishop of New York and was really a high churchman in the theological sense that I mentioned earlier. Um, the ritualism movement hadn't occurred yet, and so it's hard to tell what they would what they would think about that. But um, John Henry Hobart was a, a strong personality. If you've heard of Elizabeth Seton, the first Roman Catholic American saint, she was Episcopalian, and John Henry Hobart was, was her priest. Um, she was certainly high church. And, and certainly gained a lot of that from John Henry Hobart. John Henry Hobart founded General Theological Seminary in New York City, the oldest seminary in the Episcopal Church, and has always been um, founded on high church um, principles. John Henry Hobart's son, also named John Henry Hobart, was one of the three founders of Neshota House Theological Seminary in the 1840s, also founded on Tractarian or Oxford Movement or high church principles. So John Henry Hobart, I want you to listen to this. In 1828, 1826, before his diocesan synod said this, the opening convention, October 17th, this is what John Henry Hobart said to convention. This is uh, nine years before the beginning of the Oxford movement. He says, is high churchmen then brethren of the clergy, an appellation of which we should be ashamed? No, let it be our boast. Unpopular it can be only as it is misunderstood. The principles which it covers are those of the first and purest ages of Christianity, of the age of the apostles, of martyrs, and of confessors. The time will come when those who have professed it through good report and through evil report 
will be held in grateful honor. For the errors and heresies that deform the fair face of Christianity can be corrected under God only by the principles and policy of high churchmen. At that period, when the discordant sects that now divide and distract the Christian family profess with, quote, one heart the faith delivered to the saints, end quote, and with, quote, one mouth glorify God, end quote, the principles professed, the feelings cherished, the language uttered will be the principles, the feelings, and the language of high churchmen. Can you imagine that being said in any diocesan convention today? I cannot. But that was the theology. That was the proclamation of the Bishop of New York in 1826, before the Oxford Movement. We're talking um, 40 years after the, the founding of the Episcopal Church, and its most important see, arguably. Um, this was the, the theology of the bishop. So there's that. Um, what's the North Carolina connection? I teased that. Bishop uh, John Henry Hobart's daughter married the second bishop of North Carolina, Levi Silliman Ives, who really was mad as a hatter. Uh, I would love to have met him, and I'm, I want to read more of his addresses and, and um, acts of convention for North Carolina. But believe it or not, North Carolina, because of Bishop uh, Ravencroft, the first bishop, and um, Bishop Ives, were, were very high church. And North Carolina according to several histories, was the southern center of, believe it or not, Anglo-Catholicism. One example of that is Bishop Ives's legacy over in Watauga County, Valley Crucis. So many know the story that the Diocese of North Carolina, I think theoretically, went from the Atlantic Ocean to the, to, to the Pacific. I think theoretically, but basically went close to Tennessee. And so um, Bishop Ives would, would make his uh, trips and came to Valley Crucis. It wasn't named then. It was just the frontier saw two two creeks uh, converse um, um, to um, cross and saw a cross in that convergence and named it the Valley of the Cross, Valley Crucis, or Valley Crucis as, as we now say it, and made that his missionary outpost for the western part of the diocese. It was um, the... Um, Miss um, Fenimore, the daughter of the author of Last of the Mohicans, wrote a history of Valley Crucis and described it as a one chimney area, meaning only one one cabin in the area. Um, so his goal, his vision was to establish uh, a school uh, to train clergy, but also to train locals. And he also had a vision to have, uh, again, um, call it what you want, but it was a monastery. He, he wouldn't have called it that, but that's what it was. And so it had some successes and some failures. The school happened. There was a working farm, all those things taking place. But it was the Order of the Holy Cross, really the first monastic movement since the, the English Reformation in the early 1500s. And you've heard at St. Timothy's us mention William West Skiles, who was a deacon and member of that community. And when Bishop Ives... Uh, um, converted to the Roman Catholic Church, and the story of that is really interesting, and he really was, again, um, um, a bit off. Um, the the movement at Valley Crucis really ended, except for, Bishop, except for Deacon Skiles, he remained, and he never left his vows. So he's remembered as the first person in perpetual monastic vows since the Reformation. And of course, he's, he's buried um, just outside the Church of St. John the Baptist, off the just off the, the banks of the Watauga River. 
down the street, down the road from um, from Valley Crucis, but very much a high church, um, what we may look back now and call Anglo-Catholic expression in North Carolina, in the Episcopal Church, so early on, less than 100 years um, after the founding. Of course, moving on quickly, the Civil War changed everything, didn't it? And um, in the South, because of the, of the damage done, the religious landscape changed, and buildings and communities were either destroyed or, or severely depressed, and everything really changed. So the Anglo-Catholic movement really now moved to the, to the Northeast, where centers of Philadelphia and New York and Boston became great, um, great strongholds of the Catholic movement. The Oxford movement in the 1830s took hold um, in, in, in uh, parts of uh, New England, and in the Midwest with the founding of Neshota House, but also the ritualist movement in the 1860s and 1870s in the Church of England also took root in the um, in New England, which is why the building of churches of St. Mary the Virgin, Church of the Advent, Boston, St. Clements, Philadelphia, all of these happened in the 1850s, 1840s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, these are just wonderful examples of churches built specifically for um, for these purposes, also included the rise of monastic life um, in the church, um, so on and so forth. So all of these things are just really fascinating in the uh, in the formation of of uh, the the Anglo Catholic movement. So I would say just just to finish up here is that the 1979 Book of Common Prayer became really the it was the moment where Anglo Catholics of all of those. Theological principles that that were mentioned, the view of the episcopacy, view of the sacraments, the Holy Eucharist, all those things really became enshrined in the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. Now, Anglo-Catholics will say that with the, the prayer book of 1979, we won the battle but lost the war. What we mean by that is that the things that were once controversial all across in terms of ritualistic practices or devotional practices are now common. But the theology behind them um, is not not so much, meaning that generations ago, wearing a chasuble would be absolutely the badge of uh, popery, that you were a closet fifth column Roman Catholic. Now you can go to any low church and see um, clergy wearing chasubles. Putting uh, water in the chalice, the common mixture of water and wine in the chalice, common, but that was a real, real uh, mark that you were a ritualist back in the day. These things, these things are pretty common now. So, some examples of things that are in the 1979 Book of Common Prayer that would once upon a time were fought um, significantly over would be the use, even the use of the word altar for the altar. And in the rubrics of the 1979, altar and holy table are used interchangeably. Before, the word altar would be um, controversial because altar is the place of sacrifice. Holy table, that's that's the, that's the Lord's Supper. Um, Eastward-facing celebration is the rubrical norm. People like to argue with me on this, but read the rubrics of the prayer book. The priest faces the people for the sursum corda, or the greeting, and then turns and faces the altar for uh, the Eucharistic prayer. Not very few people do that, but it's still in the rubrics. 
Eucharistic prayer B speaks of Eucharistic sacrifice, uh, where it says, Unite us to your Son in his sacrifice, that we may be acceptable through him being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ sacrificed once and for all, but that sacrifice is made present. It's a representation of that sacrifice. The, the reality of it is, is brought, um, is, is, is made present to us so that we can join with him um, through, this, um, through this prayer. That's a really significant line in Eucharistic prayer being right too. Reservation of the Blessed Sacrament for the sick is um, now common. That was a big deal. Not always been the hasn't always been the case. Auricular confession or private confession is in the prayer book. There are two there are two rites for that. Again, big deal. Intercession of saints on Ash Wednesday at the um, Litany of Penitence. There is a prayer we all say where we say we confess to God to one another and to the whole communion of saints. In the burial of the dead, there is a prayer that says um, that references the apostles and prophets and, and martyrs, and it says that encouraged by their examples, aided by their prayers, and strengthened by their fellowship. And the prayer continues. About prayer for the dead, go to the back of the prayer book and look at the catechism. There is a question, the last page, why do we pray for the dead? Why is there a question asking why do we pray for the dead if, if it's not something that we do? And the answer is beautiful says we pray for the dead because we love them. And then what about the Virgin Mary? I mentioned the Immaculate Conception at the beginning of this podcast. What about the Assumption, for instance? Well, if you've heard many times <clears throat> in sermons at St. Timothy's on the 15th of August, the Collect of the Day is uh, addressed to Almighty God, who hast taken to thyself the Blessed Virgin Mary. Taken to thyself. Doesn't explicitly say body and soul, but not a big leap to imagine that is the point of um, of that. So there's a lot more to be said, a lot more about you know recent difficulties and challenges with the Catholic movement. But I, I just want to say is sort of what we do at St. Timothy's theologically, um, ritually, yes, absolutely. That, that developed over time um, in the 1860s and 70s. But theologically, there's absolutely not only a thread, but the founding seed uh, was um, was shared the same principles, and that's what we strive to continue. And I love to close. I love the words of Bishop Hobart. I'll just simply say again: people always ask, "What's it mean to be uh, an Episcopal Church in the Catholic uh, tradition?" Bishop Hobart, the principles which it covers are those of the first and purest ages of Christianity, of the age of the apostles and martyrs and confessors. That's the theology, that's the truth that we try to proclaim, that we seek to proclaim, and the devotions and the rituals and all the externals are, are expressions that flow from that. Um, and the moment that those expressions are disconnected with that faith and that proclamation is the day that, that we have ceased to be true Anglo-Catholics. I've talked enough, uh, and my voice is now tired, but um, I hope you have a blessed week. And hope to see you this Sunday at um, the second Sunday of Advent. If you're not in Winston-Salem, if you're not a member of St. Timothy's um, and you're far away, I hope you also find a place where you can go and hear the proclamation of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ from the Gospel of St. Mark. <laughs>